And I think what I saw in these folks that I researched was they definitely started many of them from that place of desperation where I think a lot of us can relate to. But through the struggle and the failure, they seem to get to a place of centeredness and they seem to say, yeah, I still want to do these amazing things, but I'm learning to develop a deep sense of confidence and trust in the process and in who I am. And then when success happened, it's almost like they were ready. They were ready for some of these interesting moments, not in desperation, but in with a sense of trust and with a sense of hope. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Today's guest is Luke Reynolds. Luke is here to share with us his newest book, Even More Fantastic Failures. Luke is a passionate believer in the power of stories to transform lives, especially stories that help us understand that we all fail and flounder sometimes. Luke has been a public school English teacher at both the secondary and middle school levels, and he is currently an assistant professor of education at Indicott College. He completed his PhD at Boston College and focuses on teaching, writing, and reading as three crucial paths towards compassion, kindness, and connection. Welcome to Spark Joy, Luke. Thanks so much for having me, Karen and Kristen. It's great to be with you. We loved the way your book, Even More Fantastic Failures, explores the lives of well-known people who are high-performing, successful, but they are experiencing some not-so-great times where things didn't exactly go as planned for them. What's your inspiration for going in this direction? Well, a lot of the inspiration came from working with my middle school students and seeing how, how desperately they craved to succeed and to want to do well, to want to have their life fit together and make sense and know their identity and know their direction. And yet, as you know, middle school students, that's really hard. And it's especially a time in our lives where we're really trying to figure things out and we just inevitably fail, we get rejected, we struggle. And whenever they encountered those three things, I could see the look of shame on many of their faces. They felt like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get my life together? What's wrong with me? Why can't I go from success to success to success? And so I just sort of started researching people I admired and looking for failures and rejections in my sort of heroes' lives. And I started telling these stories to my students. And that's kind of the the catalyst for Fantastic Failures was to really dig deeper below the surface in the lives of people I really admire and to look for what happened before they sort of had things put together. And what astounded me was just not that they failed, but how often they failed, how frequently they were rejected and struggled. And that became a new norm for myself that I really desperately wanted to get into the minds and hearts of my students. I'm curious, when it comes to those heroes, the people that you admired, when you asked them to share their stories, what was their reaction? Were they open to being vulnerable about failures or did they kind of hesitate? That was sort of a fascinating component of it is 
you know, I ended up when I began researching some folks I talked to, but many, many, many folks, especially the ones who are sort of historical figures, like, you know, it was really interesting to look at Joan of Arc or Socrates, these figures I couldn't always talk to, or, or some people in the book were so big, it was, you know, I, I just relied on primary research, primary resources, and, you know, podcasts and interviews. And I found that in interviews, a lot of these amazing people had already done, they would slowly sort of open up and talk about failures and rejection. So Barack Obama was a really good example. He was um, doing a podcast interview with David Axelrod, his previous director for his campaign. And after about 40 minutes of their conversation, Obama sort of opened up and really shared this powerful, I think, empowering story about how in the, the 2000 Democratic National Convention, he couldn't even get in the room. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't even let him on the floor. It, it was sort of, who is this guy? He's nobody. He can't even get a pass. Four years later, he's giving the keynote address. And four years after that, he's the nominee. And so a lot of the research was just research into primary resources and interviews and, and gathering the stories and the information that way. That story about President Obama almost made me cry when I was reading the book. Can you share with our listeners just a little bit about what happened on his journey to that convention? <laughs> it's such a wonderful story. Wonderful because we know the end and that it worked out. But he had just lost a race in Chicago and he was just downtrodden, wondering if politics was for him, wondering if he should pursue this. Nothing felt organized. Nothing felt like it was clicking the way he wanted it to. And it was Michelle who said, why don't you try to get re-inspired and go out to the DNC convention out in California? And so he got on a plane, he flew out there. And when he got there for a while, his credit card wasn't even accepted. They were literally that close to the bone in terms of finances. So he's at the rental car place and he can't even get a rental car for a while because his credit card keeps getting rejected. Finally, he's able to finagle a way to get a rental car. And he's, you know, he's finally gets himself to the convention hall. And he's the, it's this very poignant moment where Obama describes being in, in this large sort of hallway outside the main gathering area. And he's watching these speeches on the televisions posted all outside the hallways, but they will not let him in the room. And that's just, a, a, for me, a very poignant image, and I think for a lot of us, where we know where we want to be, and it often feels like we are at these doors, and for whatever reason, we are just struggling to get in the door. And we say, that's the heart of what's happening. That's where I want my life to be. And it's really frustrating. It doesn't feel good. It feels confusing why we can't get in. And I think the powerful thing about Obama's story is, it was that season. And I think for us, it's, it's, it can be a similar feeling. Those doors don't remain closed forever. It's a season of us sort of feeling like we want to get into the main hall, but we're struggling. We can't do it. But he continued to methodically work towards his goal, towards being a, an influential leader. And four years later, he made a lot of inroads, and then he's invited back to address the hall from the stage. And so I think that kind of trajectory is really powerful that these small methodical steps we can take in our lives do have the power to open doors for us. I wondered if that rental car agent 
realized <laughs> later on who it was that he did not want a car to, or finally did. But wow, what a story. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, as, that's a great point. As someone who really didn't figure anything out for herself until really late in life, hearing these mm. stories was really inspiring. Did you find that there was anything in particular that really surprised you about some of the failure stories of the people who you wrote about? Yeah, I just, and, and that's what was interesting. I just sort of, especially in, in the beginning, starting to research a lot of these folks, you know, I was shocked over and over and over again by every person I, I really dug into. It just seemed like, wow, they encountered so many walls and rejections. And sometimes it was a failure became for them a redirection. So take uh, someone like Ryan Kugler, who ended up directing the Black Panther films and and working with Chadwick Boseman and this amazing story, he, he really was pursuing football. And when he had some struggles in football, he started to get more interested in storytelling and filmmaking. And so it's sort of this way in which a failure in one area can sometimes open a door or open a window to see a new perspective, a new vista on what one might pursue. I love the story of Mindy Kaling, uh, just a wonderful, you know, brilliant uh, writer, filmmaker, actor. And she tells the story of being on the campus of Dartmouth where she went to college. And, you know, she's trying to do comedy. And she says, you know, every, there's all these white guys. And, you know, here she is, a woman of color, of Indian descent, and just a, just a force. And her humor is just so, you know, hilarious and, and smart. And she's talking about how she's trying to get these white guys on campus to laugh at her humor. And they're in this other world. She's like, I'm not connecting. What do I need to do as a comedian, as a writer? And so sometimes the failures redirect us. Sometimes we feel like we actually know there's something inside us that's brilliant and powerful, but it's not hitting home. It's not getting the response we want. And so I think I was just in the beginning surprised at the level of rejection, failure, the struggle. And then by the end of the book researching, I came to think everyone I see now who is doing amazing things in the world, I just immediately, my mind says, I know there's a lot of failure, struggle, and rejection that happened before you are where you are now. And that's such a powerful perspective to have because I think we often see kind of the like, Instagram version of people's stories, you know, where everything is so finely curated and we just assume, gosh, that person had it easy or they are lucky or, you know, but behind the scenes, I think this is what your book addresses so carefully, you know, from every story from Joan of Arc to John Cena, just about everyone in between has some kind of failure that redirected them, as you said, or made them just push harder and keep going, even though it they fell on darker times. What were the common characteristics, if there were any, of these stories that you chose for the book? That's a great question. And I think one of the key common characteristics that really stands out is there's a deep, what I guess what I would term a centeredness that developed. It seemed like it wasn't always there at the start, but the struggle, the failure, and the rejection seemed to develop a kind of centeredness or maybe balance is a better word. Mm. The, the success is no longer essential to form their identity. It's no longer, I have to succeed or else I'm nobody. It's, I now have a sense of balance about who I am. I've been through some things and I'm still okay. Now I can succeed and add that 
to who I am rather than I need the success or I am just never going to be enough. I will never measure up. And I think that's the sort of desperation that a lot of us can relate to where I need this or else I'm done. If I don't get this, I won't be a good enough dad or a good enough mom, a good enough teacher, a good enough small business owner, a good enough speed. You know, this desperate clinging, like my kids have to act this way or else I'm not going to measure up. And I think what I saw in these folks I researched was they definitely started many of them from that place of desperation where I think a lot of us can relate to. But through the struggle and the failure, they seem to get to a place of centeredness and they seem to say, yeah, I still want to do these amazing things, but I'm learning to develop a deep sense of confidence and trust in the process and in who I am. And then when success happened, it's almost like they were ready. They were ready for some of these interesting moments, not in desperation, but in with a sense of trust and with a sense of hope. And I want to be real careful to say some of these people achieve some really great things, it didn't mean that struggle was over. And I think that's the other misconception I know I still have to wrestle with is great. So I failed over and over and over, but now something great happened. Phew, I'm done with the struggle and the failure. And it's it's sort of that reality of no, that's struggle's a, a pretty constant companion. You know, as a dad of of four boys, and my wife and I will joke about, you know, great, we learned how to parent the first child. Okay, he's eleven, he's doing okay. Phew, we we kind of figured this out. And the second child, no way. You know, <laughs> you know, this does not work. We're back to square one. We know nothing. We're desperate again. Okay, now we got our balance. Child three, whoa, this is not working anymore. So, you know, this kind of dance of growth, struggle, growth, struggle. And I saw that in the lives of these people I've profiled. Quick reminder, don't forget you have until November 24th to enter our SparkJoy giveaway. We'll announce our winners during our best of show on December the 1st. Head over to sparkjoypodcast.com forward slash iTunes for instructions on how to leave a star rating and written review for the show. Then send us an email to contact at sparkjoypodcast.com to let us know you've left a review. Be sure to include your iTunes username for a chance to win one of three coveted Kanmari themed prize bundles that will definitely spark joy in celebration of our three-year anniversary. I think that's so important to note that you can't have one without the other almost in order to get to that place you were saying, that balance. And it's so interesting that, you know, this concept of not measuring up kept coming up for a lot of the stories that you featured. And I keep thinking about the whole process of organizing a home or organizing your life, as we say in the Kanmari world. I mean, it's all about making decisions. And so much of it is about self-reflection looking into the past, also owning the present and looking a bit into the future when you think about uh, the vision of your ideal life. With that, there's some positive things that can come up, definitely. And then also some more challenging negative feelings or emotions or harder decisions that need to be made. And even a sense of failure. I've seen clients who, who kind of bring failure to the table. You know, the narrative begins with I've never been able to do this before. I've always been this way and so on and so forth. Do you have any techniques for those who are tidying up their home that 
you've maybe featured in your book that could apply to them exploring past failures in order to get on a path to success? Yeah, I think that's one of, I mean, I think one of the hallmarks I see across the the people in the book and in terms of, you know, as we think about organizing our lives and our homes, apartments, wherever we live, there's this theme of being able to let go of things. And it feels excruciatingly hard in the moment, but being able to say, my identity is not built on this object that I, I've had here so long, or this, the clutter, this stuff that I've sort of held on to, I can let that go and actually embrace space. And I think, you know, when I think about someone like in the book, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, he talks about, you know, who wrote Hamilton and In the Heights and these, these beautiful, powerful, poignant musicals. He talks about how he once spent an entire day just on two lines, just writing two lines, you know, of Hamilton. And he says he struggled with those two lines. And I think to a lot of us, it feels like the more we have, the better, like the more we can cram into our spaces, the more we can fill our schedules, the more we can fill our shelves, the better we're off. And this, this little moment when Lin-Manuel Miranda talks about two lines was a triumph. It just really was powerful for me to think of sometimes this focus on let's really get down to what is really important here in this room and what are the two lines for our apartments or homes and lives and with our kids like is it important that they read 80 pages of something in a day if we're engaged in remote learning or other work sometimes is it better to read one or two pages and let that sink really deeply and so sometimes i think i've been trying to look at spaces here where we live and think hey what could i let go of to create that two line kind of room or that two line kind of life these two lines that are powerful and triumphant because there's not all these other words sort of cluttering up around them and so that would be something i really took away from that particular profile and also thinking about organizing just the space around me that sometimes by keeping more I'm adding all these unnecessary lines that get in the way of something truly powerful. You know, along those same lines, we talk with our clients and our listeners a lot about this idea that even those little mistakes teach us something about ourselves along the way, you know, whether it's buying the wrong outfit that you never end up wearing or getting into the wrong relationship. (laughs) And even if at that moment when you're deciding whether or not you want to hold on to that outfit or that relationship, It sometimes is really painful to even think about it. And when I think about like all of the work I put into getting my MBA after years and years in healthcare, because I wanted to go into healthcare finance, I got into healthcare finance and not only did I hate it, but I was really bad at it. And it was devastating to realize that I had put all this energy into something that was just not for me. And without that, I would have never gotten to where I could not be happier in what I do. But it took going through that, I believe, to get there. But I think if you would have talked to me in a minute that that was all coming, I was coming to that realization, it would have been, it was awful. I felt terrible Mm. and, and, you know, ridiculous for having invested all that. And, you know, like I was just a complete failure. So I'm wondering about the stories and the people that you've written about I wonder what they would have said to you or if they could have spoken to you 
about those moments of failure and how it was that they got past it and and kept going? Because I think that that's really critical for people who are going through a failure. How do you keep yeah. going? Yeah. Well, I think the story you shared, Karen, is so beautiful. And I think I saw a lot of what you described is a hallmark of maturity and hope and trust and all of those things we strive for. It's particularly hard, I think, when we spend a lot of time and energy and money and we work towards something and then we get there and we think, whoa, this is not it. And what I think it does is it is sort of all of that path, letting that go, then got you ready for the next step of what you were really going to do. And I think I saw that in the book where these people who, you know, like Ryan Coogler, he wouldn't say, oh, all the time I spent pursuing football was a waste. That prepared him in ways he couldn't have known to pursue directing and filmmaking and and filled him with stories. And I think that's what I saw over and over again, this very powerful theme that nothing is wasted, everything matters. And I think in our heads, when we're in that decision moment, like you said, of letting go of something, we think, if I let go of this, I'm wasting all the time, all the money I spent to to buy this, the trip I took to get it, the the energy I poured into this relationship, or even if I feel like this is no longer healthy or good for me, I, I have to hold on to it because I've already poured into it. What the the character the the people in the book, I I think their common words back to us in that moment is you're not owned by the past you've given to. All that was was to get you to this exact moment of decision. And now by letting it go, you kind of turn and embrace the next beautiful step of who you are and who you're becoming. And I think that I saw that over and over again. They stopped looking at their past with shame and they started to see like, whoa, this was part of the path I needed to take to get me where I was. He's not in the book, but there's a great writer named Charles Baxter. He said, you know, when he's writing, he never stops himself from writing an idea because he says sometimes the tangents eventually lead him to a beautiful character or a really cool moment that he never would have gotten to if he hadn't followed the tangent. And I think sometimes those tangents, we think that's just a waste, but they eventually get us to this aha moment. But then we need to let go of the tangents instead of saying, well, I got to keep that whole, you know, the dress I bought, the outfit I bought, the, the relationship I poured into, I have to keep it or else I've wasted it. No, we haven't wasted it. It just got us to this next moment where we're ready to make the next decision. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show. Luke, we find ourselves in this moment, this season, where there's definitely lots of challenges. For our listeners who have been having a hard time finding the joy right now due to everything that's going on, do you have any techniques that are particularly 
helpful for reframing and getting back on track? I can share what I have been doing more, just total transparency, especially a lot, as you said. Right yes, now. please do. It's just so much struggle. But uh, I'll even make my, my college students will do this. And, you know, I think they secretly like it, even though it's a lot to do. But at the start of a class with my college students, I'll often say, okay, before we dive in, could everyone stand if you're able? And we'll all close our eyes and we'll just take three slow, steady breaths, like really simple, like 30 seconds. We'll do it together. Closing eyes, take three real slow, steady breaths, exhaling really deeply. And then we'll sit back down. And then the start of class feels that tiniest bit different. So that's one big thing. The other big thing, I guess, practical strategy I'm trying to use in my life is when things feel really hard, stop. Not forever, but for a while. So like I'll be sitting here and say, I've got a stack of papers to grade and the house is a total mess. And, you know, my wife and I, we've got to clean up the kitchen, but dinner was late and we had cereal for dinner and the kids are still awake. You know, it's almost like stop everything and go outside and just touch the grass, touch a tree, you know, like go for a, a literally a three minute walk to the, you know, a couple of houses down and back and then come back and do one thing. And the last practical strategy that I'm trying to do is in my head, the idea of like clean one dish, just put one dish in the dishwasher. And after that, if you're still overwhelmed, you can take a break. And I tell myself this, and by the time I've done the one dish, I would think I can do one more dish. And then, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't feel so bad. So the one dish mentality is, has been helping me a lot. <laughs> Those are great. I'm going to use all of those tonight <laughs> just to close out the day. <laughs> I was going to say, you need to write your next book on organizing because those are definitely great techniques. We ask all of our guests about their favorite organizing or tidying tip. And for you, Luke, I would love to know if you heard or read or, or talked with any of the folks that you wrote about. Uh, any particular organizing tips that they might have had that you found useful? I got to talk about this one person in the book, Alan Naiman. And only because none of us really have ever heard him. I'd never heard of him. He just I came across his story on a whim. But he was this fascinating guy who led this very quiet, very tidy life. He was a social worker. His job was to find kids' homes. Kids in trauma, you know, as a social worker, he would bring them to a safe place, sometimes a foster home, a group home, just to, to get them to safety. Uh, very, very quiet, very humble guy. And when he passed away, he had millions of dollars to his name and nobody knew it. He had one really close friend that knew he had inherited some of the money, some of the money he made in business before he switched careers because he hated business. And it was very, his story was very interesting because it was very quiet and he just sort of slowly and steadily took this money away and then he donated all of it in his will. And it kind of shocked everyone, the organizations that received the money. We're used to, if we do something, we want to sort of make a grand show of it. Like, look what I've done. And um, his story was deeply, not that that's bad. It's a, so we need that, you know, sometimes be like, I'm proud of you. We need that. We need to say that to each other. But Alan Naiman's story was so interesting to me because here was someone who just day by day sort of did these simple things. There's a, a his friend told a funny story how, you know, he would duct tape his shoes when they got holes instead of, you know, he just kind of, he had what he had. He didn't buy much. He kept it really simple. 
but the effect of his life was profound and huge. And I guess I would share the, the strategy from his life that I extrapolate and try to take for myself and for my students and others is, you know, sometimes we just get so stuck in thinking we have to do these huge things or else they don't matter. And I think Alan Naiman's story is kind of like, when we look at our lives, we all the little tiny things we do, by the time you know we're ready to say goodbye, they produce this symphony. They produce something big. It might not be millions of dollars, but it's millions of something else. You know, millions of hugs, millions of kisses, millions of high fives, millions of laughs over a drink or a cup of coffee or tea. But you know, that focus on the small moments instead of thinking, if I don't do something grandiose, my life won't matter. And I think it's that focus on real small, quiet acts of love and connection create a profound legacy. I so love that. I have recently been sharing with people in my family little tiny small things that I remember about them. And often it is those little tiny small things, those special moments that sometimes comes as a real surprise to find out mm. that someone remembers something that might have happened years ago. But those are some of the most meaningful things. I just love that. That's awesome. Well, and finally, we must ask, what is sparking the most joy for you at this very moment? I got to be honest and say, you know, just I'm really grateful for my wife. She's so good at organizing. And over the course of, you know, 15, 16 years, she's taught me so much about organizing, letting go of things. I once told her, I was like, you know, I can tell when you've been in a room because it always feels better after you've been there. So I'm just right now seeing her kind of go through life and obviously things are really hard, but watching her try to hold on to those little moments, like with the kids and we both will be like, as I've said, up to our elbows and dirty dishes and just watching her try to say, you know what, I got to take that deep breath and laugh with the kids and we'll get the dishes done. It's going to be okay. So that's sparking a lot of my, my joy right now. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Luke, for visiting with us today. Thank you so much, Karen and Kristen, for talking with me. It was delightful. Yes. Thank you for sharing failures versus success, all of these stories that you've learned so much from. And also thank you for sharing how you're handling these difficult times. I think your family is a great model for how to get through adversity and find the joy. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. You can learn more about Luke and his latest book release, Even More Fantastic Failures, at LukeReynolds.com. And as a special gift to our listeners, Luke is giving away a hardback edition of his book. To win, email contact at SparkJoyPodcast.com with Even More Fantastic Failures in the subject line. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the SparkJoy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the SparkJoy community or join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your host, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City.
Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media, Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media, Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.